Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel so inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Danielle Philibert. Dr. Philibert has been working with the Huntsman Marine Science Center in New Brunswick, Canada for four years now. Though she started out with the Institute as a postdoc, Danielle is now an associate research scientist who specializes in aquatic toxicology. Specifically, her research focuses on the toxicity of oil contaminants to species of cultural and economic importance. Having completed her doctoral philosophy at the University of Alberta, her work focused predominantly on freshwater fishes distributed across three contaminant-based studies. The impact of weathering on crude oil toxicity, a comparison of conventional and unconventional crude oil toxicity, and the effects of both raw and ozonated oil sands processed affected water. Now on the East Coast, Dr. Philibert works with marine species from the Bay of Fundy. When she's not in the lab, presenting her research, or partaking in the variety of services and programming that the Huntsman facilitates, Dr. Philibert is busy powerlifting and winning medals in international competitions. So welcome to the podcast, Danielle. I really appreciate that you could take the time to join me today and chat a bit about the Huntsman and the work that you do. Thanks for having me on. First, I'd like to ask about the Huntsman Marine Science Center. I know that there's some education, outreach, and citizen science programs that take place there, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the programs that the Institute facilitates. Yeah, so the Huntsman has been around for over 50 years now, um, and it has a rich history being involved with both academic and non-academic research. And what's cool about the Huntsman is we're a not-for-profit that hits a lot of different types of goals. We do a lot of research, and then we do a lot of education and outreach. And some of our programs involve both high school age students, elementary age students doing camps and things like that. And then we have the aquarium that's open to the public. And we also have options for adults to go on citizen science cruises where they get to sample zooplankton and idea it in the lab. And that kind of is the range of education outreach programs we have. And it really depends. We also run courses called Ocean Steam, which is like for high school age students to learn job type skills like working with ocean mapping and things like that and there's a variety of different courses that are all also run through the huntsman i love the different i guess diversity and age groups that can get involved like right from kind of youth youth all the way up to as you mentioned adult aged cruises that's really cool yeah and what also is neat is we even have a toddler in the winter because in new brunswick if you don't have a lot of places to walk if it's like really snowy and miserable out we have toddler time where you can take your stroller and walk around. Even though it's not like an education opportunity, it's still a great way to expose very young kids to the aquarium and what we have there. Um, and we have senior walking as well. So it's like very much designated to be a part of the community. That's always our goal, um, to be integrated with young people to adults. So along the same train of thought, are there any upcoming ways for folks who may be in the area soon to get involved or visit regardless of scientific expertise? Yeah, so the aquarium is number one. It is open to the public. Uh, We're only open in typical tourist season, so spring to late fall, but we also have started hosting events well into the winter season. Like we have an auditorium and we'll host like concerts and stuff to allow the community to come to the Huntsman. But yeah, that is the main way just for the public. And then they have all these programs you can register for as any member of the public. And 
the level of detail, it's really taught to a non-biologist audience. That's really the focus. The research is quite separate. Um, Though we feature the research in the aquarium, it isn't really what's taught on those courses. Those courses are much more citizen, like everyday person catered type education. So moving more into your work, can you tell us a bit about what the last four years have looked like for you shifting from a postdoc to a scientist working in the Bay of Fundy? Yeah, it's a it's been a very a bit of an adventure in a way because I grew up in Alberta and that's where I did my PhD and I very much when I started my thought was to get into consulting once I finished my PhD and my parents had a farm and I was planning to work on the farm and do kind of a consulting type job so I didn't really have a postdoc or more work and research on the horizon when I finished but I was because of the climate in Alberta right when I graduated and the political shift there, there wasn't a ton of funding for environmental research. Uh, it was quite limited. And when I saw the posting at the Huntsman, it was right in my area of expertise. It's not often when you're in an academic setting that you find a postdoc that is like aligned so much with what you did your PhD on. It was a project looking at single com- components of oil and their toxicity. And since I'd done whole oil tox testing, I was like, oh, this is like the next step. Uh, it'd be really cool. So when I applied and got the job, I was pretty excited. Initially, thinking this would be a one-year contract because that's what it was when I started. And uh, after being here for a year, my project was really successful and we got more funding and I really fell in love with the Maritimes and living on the East Coast. Uh, The lifestyle here is very different and being so close to the ocean, it's hard to beat. So I uh, stayed on and rolled over from a postdoc to a research associate. And my partner moved out here because originally he stayed in Alberta thinking I'd be back in a year. But then he had to move across the country like during the, you know, 2020, during COVID, the nightmare. And my parents and my, I have one sister all moved out here. So my entire family now lives within like 20 minutes of where I live in New Brunswick. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, like the job, what was really different and something that's really to Huntsman's credit compared to academia is the QAQC process. So how we verify and validate our data. In a typical academic setting, you grad student designs the project with the help of the supervisor, executes the experiment, collects the data, inputs the data, graphs their data, and then you write it up and publish your data. But that's all being done through one single person with no QAQC. And that's very standard for academic labs. Whereas at the Huntsman, because we do on the research end, we do both uh, academic research funded by the government through various grants, as well as uh, private contracts with in industry partners like pharmaceutical companies. We also do like standardized testing for them. And that burden of proof you need and the quality of data you need is so much higher. It really changed. It really changed how I view data. Like for example, if we were to do a study at the Huntsman, I, as a PI, I'd help design and write out exactly what the experiment would be, all the conditions, the species, treatment groups randomization table, uh, the technicians would, you know, do the experiment. They're blinded. They don't know the randomization table answer. They input the data. Someone else QAQCs it. Then someone else, you know, it's all done with degrees of separation. Then I get a verified cell sheet with my data on it. And then I graph it and analyze it. So you're much more far removed from the actual data collection itself. Uh, like I still do lab work, but not to the same extent. And the quality, because it's done to that standard, 
is so much higher than what is the needed in academic settings typically. And I, 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 lo- I think that's really important and a big change. Something I'd love to bring more to like an academic setting is having that, especially when we've seen in biology, these cases of fraudulent data and people being caught publishing pro- fraudulent data, if they had the same QAQC pro- protocols that you have to have in an industry lab or a lab that does industry work, that wouldn't happen. So it's, yeah, it'd be something cool to bring to academia, but I don't think we're quite there yet. It's interesting because as an undergrad, I remember being taught and this being stressed so much to students about the importance and the ethics of good data management and collection practices and the absence of biases and all of these things. But then as you start to move through the academic pipeline, you start to see it in practice and in real life more and more. So there's just a disconnect between what you learn is best practices and what's actually done on the ground, which is wild to me. Yeah. And there's some interesting steps, like having raw data available. I think the more that journals mandate that, where you have to share your data on a, like, for example, I just published a study with where I had to share my data on Figshare. So it's public. Anyone could look at the raw data. And I think as much as that's a bit of a pain at the time to do, it really does. I think that that is one step in the right direction for sure for that integrity of data availability and when you're publishing these studies. So I read your 2021 paper on crude oil exposure in juvenile zebrafish, and I was wondering if you could walk us through what you found regarding diluted bitumen in aquatic ecosystems, as this particular oil is frequently transported by rail and pipeline across both Canada and the U.S. And I believe, unfortunately, it finds its way to water much more than one might think. So that was part of a multi-year project. Uh, There's a few papers I've done on diluted bitumen. It first started as uh, a funding from the government of Alberta, just doing comparative tox tests because difficulty of testing the toxicity of oil compared to a lot of other contaminants is it's so chemically diverse. Each oil is completely unique based on the level of refinement, the geological source, and the diluents added. So even one dilbit might be completely different from another dilbit from regular crude oil. So the start of that project was looking at how does Dilbit compare it to two conventional crudes? Uh, and I had a, a sour crude and a sweet crude because Dilbit has a, a relatively high sulfur content. So it tends to be more comparable to a sour crude. And what we found is that on a mass of oil basis, it was less toxic or comparable to conventional crude, which was a great initial finding because the worry there when we were starting that study is, is it a way more toxic because we've added all these diluents and how much could they contribute to toxicity? And we found that it was comparable, if not slightly less toxic. Uh, the next stage of that project, and this is all work I did in my PhD before coming to the Huntsman, was looking at, I did some work with transgenerational effects, looking at fish behavior and things like that. And we found that, yeah, there is some pretty interesting stuff. And these are trends I saw with a variety of different oils that I looked at. um, Because I've also done work with oil from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, is that the impacts of very brief exposures early in life can have very chronic, in a way, effects on fish and how they behave. And we saw some really interesting transgenerational changes in behavior. We also saw the classic oil effects where if you expose early life stages of fish to oil, you'll see changes in heart rate, you can see uh, changes in growth, uh, changes in arrhythmia. Uh, So a variety of different effects 
uh, were observed. And it was a really exciting opportunity to have diluted bitumen because one of the things about testing oil, on top of it being so diverse, complex, and different, you know, difficult to work with, is that getting access to oil for tox testing can be a real challenge. And we were lucky to have a s- samples to work with. But yeah, it was it was really fun and groundbreaking to get to work with that product. That was one of the few research groups at the time, back when I published, I think, my first study in 2017 that had access to dilute bitumen. Yeah, it really translated well into what I do now, which is kind of breaking that down. The problem, like I was alluding to earlier about oil and testing the oil itself, is that it's different. It changes when it's in the environment. Every source is different. So just testing the oil isn't very predictive of the effects of all oils or a variety of different oils. It's very like a singular purpose uh, type of trial. And what I do now at the Huntsman, which I think has a lot more scope and application, is testing individual components of oil and developing models to predict the effects of mixtures like oil based on those singular components. And so that instead of having to test every diluted bitumen product or every unique oil product that comes on the market, we can extend instead develop models to take that single compound data and then predict the effect of that oil without ever having to test that oil. And there's still it's still in the process. We still need to validate it with a whole oil testing. But the goal is to move past that just because it's such a dynamic mixture, especially when it's spilled in the environment. Wow, that is incredible. Not even having to use the actual sample, but just being able to, in a way, sort of model and predict the impacts. That's so cool. Yeah, it's the it's the dream. What you really need is you need the composition of the oil. And there's been enough fate modeling done that if we know the composition of the oil itself, we should be able to predict toxicity. Um, the biggest barrier and something I've, we've been working on a lot at the Huntsman is under, we to do that properly, you need species sensitivity data. And a lot of the tests have been done with standard lab species. And what we specialize at the Huntsman is Atlantic species that are culturally and economically important that aren't standard test orgs. So we work a lot with lobster, cod, lumpfish, different algae, uh, different, we've worked with some copepods. So having that really relevant species on top of having standard test methods that we have for those species and then developing that model is really the goal and what we tend to work towards, at least my project. We the, uh, Huntsman as a whole has a lot of other research kind of avenues, but that's my focus. Speaking of lobster, in the fifth issue of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry, you have a paper on assessing the toxicity of aromatic compounds and mixtures to lobsters using a passive dosing system. This was a really fascinating experimental design to read about, and I was wondering if you could walk us through it. Yeah, uh, passive dosing is something new I learned when I came to the Huntsman and now has really become our bread and butter for these difficult to test organic compounds. So what it is, is it involves a silicone uh, reservoir. We use silicone O-rings that you can buy from, we buy them from O-ring West, just like this O-ring manufacturing company. We buy them by the tens of thousands. And what you do is you can use partitioning kinetics to make stock solutions. So we make our compound of choice and these compounds are all found in oil, so they're not super soluble in water. And that makes them difficult to test with. But we're able to mix them with methanol, add our O-rings, agitate them. And because the O-rings are silicone and they act as a proxy lipid in terms of the compounds tend to be more soluble in the silicone than they are in the methanol, they partition into those silicone O-rings. And then we take those O-rings 
and we put them in our test vessel after we rinse them. And that allows the compound that has now been stored in the O-ring like a reservoir to reach equilibrium with water. So it doses the water. And what's really amazing about this technique and anyone doing any organic toxicity testing should give it a try because it never goes above solubility level and you don't need a solvent. So these O-rings just are that reservoir and they not only dose your test solution, but they maintain that concentration because it's constantly partitioning compound as compound is lost. So it works well for compounds that are more volatile, as well as those really insoluble, really stable compounds. It'll partition and then just maintain those concentrations. And it, it's we've done it now with tons of different species and different temperatures. And um, we've done a lot with seawater and both a little bit of freshwater testing. And it's a amazing technique. It works so well. That is wild. Who would have thought that's one of the many applications of O-rings? Yeah. Yeah. And now it's just, it's become such a staple. There's are, there are some, I've tested it with like 21 different polycyclic aromatic compounds. They're the primary toxic constituent of crude oil, the one we attribute toxicity to. And uh, it's been good for most of them. The only time I've hit some like bumps with the technique is working with oxygenated compounds. There's a lot of interest in the impact of UV light on oil toxicity. So looking at photooxidized byproducts of PACs or polycyclic aromatic compounds it can be a little bit challenging with O-rings. But other than that, it's been awesome. 10 out of 10 recommend. So I'm also wondering if due to the potential application of your work and the maritime fisheries industry, if you find yourself at the intersection of policy and management guidelines at all, either from a food safety or even a conservation perspective with the work that you do. There's definitely some, not so much food safety concerns, but conservation concerns that are integrated with aquatic toxicology as a field. I always like to think toxicology is like true crime of biology. So you have your organism, you have its physiology, and then you have this contaminant and the potential effects. And so you're examining that intersect and that totally overlaps with conservation biology as far as if there were to be a spill to occur. The thing that makes it challenging is we tend to get funding in response, not proactively from spills. So specifically with oil, a lot of funding happens after spill occurs and then it tends to dry up a little bit. And then, you know, if we have another incident, then we get more funding. So that makes it challenging and less proactive from a conservation standpoint. We've been lucky. There's a lot of funding right now through the Ocean Protection Plan for oil work because Canada as a whole has been very proactive because there is concerns that fragile species that are very important to fisheries, like, say, for example, Atlantic cod or a lobster here in New Brunswick and in Nova Scotia, if there were to be a spill, the impact that could have, because if you're having mass mortality of lobster from a spill, that impacts fisheries management to a pretty large extent. So though we're not directly involved with that, uh, we are adjacent. The work we're doing is very adjacent to that and that if there were to be a spill or risk of exposure, they'd have to integrate the data we're generating. But we don't tend to be directly involved because again, it's it's more of a spill case scenario. Uh, Some other work that I'm not necessarily directly part of, but we do it. The Huntsman looks at aquaculture pesticides. And I think that one has a much, that project has a much tighter overlap because there is some concern uh, with that aquaculture pesticides and the indirect effect they could have on non-target species. And I think that project 
from the Huntsman perspective, is much more closely intertwined. And shifting gears a bit, I have two questions for someone who does the work that you do. One of them is, are you still able to eat seafood? And the second one is, how do you not just get utterly devastated at work all the time? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I, I actually absolutely love seafood. I'm one of those people that I could, you know, work with cod and then have cod fillets for dinner. But I'm also like a farmer. I grew up on a farm, so I'm pretty used to eating my pets, for lack of a better word. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so for me, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, but there are some people at work that don't. They, they definitely. And there was one project we had working with oysters that after all the like spawning, dissecting of oysters, that there's a few people on that project that want nothing to do with raw oysters they would never (laughs) never to eat an oyster Um, again and as for like is it because i i do like we do a lot of tox testing if we're getting at lethal endpoints sublethal endpoints the reason i think that it's so doable first of all the most of our testing is done with early life stages and we do that on purpose from an animal ethics standpoint and they tend to be the most sensitive so we're not usually if we're doing a study on lobsters we're not capturing 180 lobsters, adult lobsters from the wild, and then exposing them for the majority of our work. Instead, we're bringing in like 30 adult buried females that have eggs. And we have a permit from the Department of Fishery and and Oceans to do that. And we're triggering releases and we're using very early life stages before they're even feeding. So it isn't as uh, like from an animal ethics and animal use standpoint, it isn't as like jarring or, you know, as uh, difficult to get used to. So that's part of it. And the other part is I find what I do profoundly interesting. Uh, so I can look past that because I want to understand my systems better. And I know that the data we're generating is going to be used by stakeholders. It's not just to sit in a paper somewhere and die. The goal, and it's every scientist's goal, but the reality is a lot of data isn't used that way. But this data, because it's so applied and because we also work directly with modelers who use the data, and they help design our studies. We know that every trial we do has an impact and it has like use beyond just publishing the work itself. And I think that makes it, that purpose makes it easy. And that, and I just, I can't wait to see what happens. Pretty much every trial we do, it's profoundly interesting to me. I like that. It's kind of like being a part of the solution, which is... Yes, and it's knowing that is needed. You're filling a needed gap. It's not just research for the sake of research. And that is important too. I will say sometimes research for the sake of research is where the major like breakthroughs come from and it's totally needed. But there is, uh, it's, it's sometimes easier when you're doing something so applied to find the purpose behind your work. And that at the Huntsman, because we're a non-for-profit and we don't have core funding for our research program, it's all through grants. It has to be pretty applied. And I think that is partly what keeps me going too, is just the excitement of working with people who make tangible change with that data and make it'll be used in decision-making. Something else that I was excited to ask you about is another 2021 paper that you're on in Science of the Total Environment. And we briefly touched on light, but where we've been talking a lot about oil and oil sands process affected water so far as environmental toxins and contaminants, this particular paper talks about ultraviolet filters. So could you walk us through your involvement in this research and maybe recommend a fish-safe sunscreen? Yeah, so... Uh, That was actually a really cool project I did right after I finished my PhD and right before I got uh, hired at the Huntsman. 
I uh, did kind of a postdoc, if you could call it that, uh, in my lab while I was job searching. I had some fun to do it, uh, looking at these UV filters because we had seen a CNN article talking about how exposure to UV filters in coral was causing coral bleaching. And we thought, oh, what if we looked at an invertebrate, a freshwater invertebrate, since most of the work it was being done on marine, and we chose Daphnia because we had a good friend, Dr. Tamsin Blewett, who's also on the paper, who was killing it with Daphnia research. She had done a ton of work with Daphnia and she had access to them. So I started the project and then someone took it over. And now Aaron Boyd, who is the lead author on the paper, he actually has done his PhD on those compounds. So he took it over once I got a job at the Huntsman. But it was super interesting looking at chronic exposure to uh, these different components of sunscreen. We picked a few uh, and they're all found in chemical sunscreen. So there's two types of sunscreen. If you're looking at products to use, there's physical filter sunscreen, which would be your zinc oxide, titanium dioxide. And then there's your chemical sunscreen filters, which would be your avobenzone, octocrylene, uh, oxybenzone. Um, and we actually found that at pretty low concentrations, it was toxic to these invertebrates. Now, of course, the difference between invertebrate sensitivity in humans, that doesn't say they're not safe to use. They're totally safe to use. Uh, and those studies are, are been done by the FDA. They've been done on human cells. It's just for our invertebrate species. And the concern would be if you're, if a lot of people are using them and, you know, entering freshwater bodies are these compounds, which are pretty lipophilic. They're pretty fat soluble and they're pretty stable. Are they sticking around and could they be causing effects? And I don't think we're there to say but if I were to recommend, I personally, and this is for two reasons. One, the for toxicology, I actually like the titanium oxide, the zinc dioxide, the zinc oxide, sorry, and titanium dioxide physical sunscreens. They spread, they're, they tend to have white cast, but they don't burn your eyes. And they're not as toxic as far as we've seen so far to invertebrates, at least at concentrations you'd see after applying and then entering a freshwater invert uh, or freshwater water body. That, that that would be my personal choice. The big compound that most people are worried about and interested in is oxybenzone. And you can already see marketing for reef safe sunscreen that don't have oxybenzone. But we in our study saw that some of those other compounds are also toxic. So yeah, I, I just stick with the physical filters like the zinc oxide and the titanium dioxide. I think that's, and they burn your eyes less, <laughs> even if they're a bit pasty, <laughs> I find they just work better for me. Well, it's awesome. Thank you for the recommendation. So I'm also interested, obviously, in how absolutely badass you are as a powerlifting competitor who's represented both New Brunswick and Canada on national and international stages. First of all, congratulations. And second, how do you balance your academic and athletic lives? I often hear people in science and academia struggling with work-life balance as it is, and I think it's really inspiring to see a success story in both scientific and athletic contexts. And I'm wondering if you find that that sort of dichotomy kind of balances you out as a researcher when you have something that's your own outside of work as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it, it's an interesting kind of contrast, I think. But I didn't get into powerlifting till I started my PhD, so I wasn't I did no sports. Really, I got I did rowing a little bit, but I wasn't hardcore into sports until I started powerlifting. And what made me want to start is being so sedentary as a lab based scientist. I'm most of the time sitting at a desk hunched over the worst posture and I have all this energy to burn, but I'm mentally exhausted. And that kind of start me going to the gym and 
by training at the gym, I kind of found powerlifting because I found I was freakishly strong. Like I was just starting out, I was having a really easy time getting stronger. And the two very much complement themselves because powerlifting is a very data-driven exercise because it's a non-dynamic lift. So it's not super technical, but it's based on numbers and strength. And that number crunching works really well if you like data, if you like playing with data and you like, you can do the same thing as powerlifting. And I did find that having an academic career or career that has a lot of flexibility really complements being an athlete. There's not a lot of jobs where you can be super flexible. So like my workday, I typically try and be there when most of the staff is there, which is a typical 9 or 8.30 to 4.30. But I can be flexible around my training. If I have to come in late and get a training session, uh, my job allows that. So in some ways, it really complements. And I think having a physical outlet for such a like brain power driven type job is so important just to turn off your brain and just like work. I, I find it very um, an easy compliment. It also is something I'm very passionate about. I, I never did sports as a kid, as I mentioned earlier, I did 4-H. So that's almost a sport dragging a steer around. I'd say it's pretty close, but finding it as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, it, it's pretty close, but uh as an adult, it's really become a great way to balance. And I always think it's important as an academic, you alluded to having life balance. I think it's important to have multiple things on the go, because if something's going bad, it's nice to have a diversity of interest so that at least always something is going good. So if research is not going well, if your test orgs are just giving you a hard time, I always, I tend to have powerlifting going well. So I have something to look forward to even outside of a stressful situation and vice versa. When lifting isn't going well, work tends to be going super well. So then I'm like, well, at least I have something else to like look forward to and, you know, kind of keep that balance just to have a diversity of interest because it's, uh, there's a lot of pressure, as I'm sure you know, in academic type research to be singular as a person, as a researcher. And I think our generation is starting to move away from that. And I think it's an important thing to move away from that because having diversity of interest is key to adapting to how grueling sometimes research, science, publishing can really be, it can be pretty grueling and all consuming at times and having something that I show up for myself, that no matter what, I'm going to train, I'm going to get my training in, having that dedicated time for myself, I think has really helped me stay passionate about my work, because I have time to step away from it. And I don't feel drained by the work I have. Yeah, sometimes distance really does make the heart grow fonder. Yeah, yeah. And uh, powerlifting, it's, uh, it's so easy. Of all sports, you, you need, you just need a gym. Like it's so easy to do when I travel because we, we travel to conferences and I don't miss training often because it's so easy to do everywhere. And you can make it fit your life, depending on how much time you have compared to if you were in a team sport or something like that, where you had designated practice times, I, it, 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 as a sport itself, it really does fit well. And yeah, if it wasn't for the support of from my coworkers to be flexible around my training to the degree it is, I don't think I'd be able to excel to the same degree. I'm very lucky to work with people who, you know, that allow that flexibility and to have a career that allows that flexibility. So finally, something that I like to ask my guests as I'm still in the very early stages of my career is that if you had one piece of advice for yourself as a young grad student or researcher in this field, what would that be? That's a great question. I think the biggest driver in science should always be curiosity and that kind of drive for finding the answer. And my piece of advice would be like, don't 
lose that through the trudgery and monotony of the academic experience. Don't lose that curiosity and that desire to find out what's going to happen because sometimes I think we can forget when we're so deep into the project that really we're answering an unknown. That's, that's the point of science is to answer an unknown and to stay driven by that curiosity, I think is really important. The other thing would be have fun with it because it only, you only end up with more responsibility. The further you go, more responsibility, have fun and try and enjoy it as much as you can because it goes by really quick. I am still friends with all the people I did my uh, PhD with that were in the lab, but it, it was such a fun time in my life. And I feel like, you know, getting bogged down by the weight of the workload that you have you can forget how you're supposed to have fun while you're doing this experience. So those, that would be my other thing is, yeah, have fun with it. Because my PhD was one of the most fun, like, five years of my life, for sure. It was a riot. I just, like, it, it was, the people were awesome. The super, my supervisor was great. And uh, really focusing on making sure you're enjoying it and, you know, you're interested in what you do, I think makes a big difference. Alrighty. So now we get to hear your final five. And this is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us here on the fisheries pod get asked. So we'll start off with question one. What is your favorite fish? So mine would be a bluefin tuna. Uh, That's mostly for physiology nerd reasons. So I think they're the coolest because they have regional heterothermy where they're ectotherms, but they have warmer spots like behind the muscles behind their eyes and along their, la- their back that allows them to swim so fast. And the fact that they can do that as an ectotherm, I think is so freaking cool. <laughs> that is very cool. Wow, you learn something new every day. And question two, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? One of my favorites, oh, that's, yeah, is uh, with, there was me, and another grad student in the lab, and we had a conference in Winnipeg, and we road tripped across from Edmonton, Alberta, all the way to Winnipeg. And that conference, the the fun we had as a group, and that whole road trip was just awesome. That was one of the best times. That and publishing, getting my first acceptance letter for my very first paper. Oh, nothing beats that. When you get your first paper accepted, that you just feel on top of the world. That, that was the, those two for sure. The third question is, what is your dream job? I don't want to jinx it, but I think I kind of have it right now. <laughs> I, honestly, I, uh, working at the Huntsman is really a pleasure. I am lucky to work with on a team of truly excellent people. My supervisor, Ben, is taught me so much, and he is so great to work with. Dr. Benjamin DeJordan, I should give him a full name shout out. Uh, he has really changed my view on a lot of things in science. He, he's really taught me a lot, and working with him, it, he's fun to work with, but he also is so knowledgeable, and having that asset to work with has been great. And yeah, I work with another postdoc, Davide Aznakar, and he is a lot of fun. So the team, the people I work with, I think I'm right now in my dream position for right now in my career. Couldn't imagine working somewhere else just yet. I don't know. The projects are great. You never know when a good project comes along. But right now, I I get a mix of very applied work that is I find very interesting, and the team just seals the deal. It's the perfect job. That is wonderful. I love when a lot of people say it, like, "Oh, I'm doing it," and that's. Very inspiring for the the next generation of up-and-coming grad students. (laughs) 
So if money and funding was not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? I would love to do some work with amphibians and oil talks. And I'd also love to do some work with eels and oil talks. And I think that would be so cool. There's a few species that are not really included in species sensitivity distributions for crude oil just because they're so difficult to test with. And I think working with those would be very interesting. There's a data gap there. And I think we could do a really good study, but the difficult of like housing and eels are so expensive uh, to have them on hand to do that work would be challenging, a pretty expensive and logistical challenge. I think that would be something I'd really like to work with. Yeah, that, for me, I've done so many work with different species. I really would love to just keep expanding that, working with more uh, unique species and collecting that data. And finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I guess it, it, the, the audience toxicology might be a little fisheries adjacent, but I think uh, there's a lot of overlap there. And I hope people could get the impression of the kind of profound application of toxicology research and the potential overlap that you can see between fisheries management type work as well as uh, toxicity testing and the implications of uh, some sort of spill or release scenario. Um, So I think just, yeah, seeing the breadth of biology and a different end of that kind of fisheries management related research. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've learned a lot today and I can absolutely see as somebody that's studying marine management, how there would be a lot of different overlap and applications between fields. Well, Dr. Philibert, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to learn more about your work in the Huntsman Marine Science Center. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? Yeah, so we have a website, uh, www.huntsmanmarine.ca, as well as uh, if you look me up on LinkedIn and Twitter, we we tend to be pretty active as a group on uh, Twitter as far as talking about research as well as you could reach out to me personally by email. Um, and I'd love to discuss anything I've done. I, I have various publications out, but I always love to talk toxicology. So yeah, uh, I'd be totally down with that. Amazing. Thank you. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old fashioned email through feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, always be on the lookout for interdisciplinary applications of various research initiatives. Bye.